Good morning, church. Um, it is so good to be with you and be able to preach the word today. Um, if you remember at the end of Trent's sermon last week, he mentioned um, that the Church of the Nazarene is a church that affirms and calls women um, to preach and to be ordained. Um, so thank you for being a church that allows um, women to, to fill the pulpit. Uh, it, it feels good to be able to preach the word to you today. Um, so when Trent first asked me if I would preach today, I wasn't yet aware of which chapter of 1 Corinthians I would be preaching on. I definitely should have checked before saying yes. <laughs> so thanks a lot, Trent, if you're watching. Um, no, I joke, but I say that because today's chapter, chapter 15, it, prevent, it presents so many challenges, not just for us, but for literally every single person, scholar, theologian, whoever you want, name it, every human who's ever set out to understand and explain this passage has had a hard time. So here I am, young and pretty fresh out of seminary, trying to preach a sermon about one of the most debated topics in the history of the church. No big deal. Challenge accepted. You're going to learn so much today. I just know it. Um, but just a side note, the fact that this is a challenging passage, um, that shouldn't scare us away. It's so important for us as the church to wrestle with difficult passages of scripture, right? It would be easy for us to just brush over them or even ignore them completely and just focus on the, the easy ones like 1 Corinthians 13, right? The love chapter. It's easy to preach about love. Uh, but uh, today we're going to dig our heels in a little bit. Um, so are you with me? You ready? Um, so not only is chapter 15 full of challenges, but it's 58 verses long. Uh, so while the entire chapter is important, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just be reading portions of it because it would be rude of me to make you stand for 58 verses. So you're welcome. <laughs> but before I read our text for today, I want to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of um, kind of history about where the church in Corinth is at in this chapter. We've already learned quite a bit about the Corinthian church, right? We're 15 chapters in, one more chapter next week, and then we'll be on to something new. But this chapter, chapter 15, kind of stands out from the rest in that Paul is addressing this core issue, which by now you're probably wondering what it is because I've hyped it up a little bit. But in the same breath, this chapter is in line with the rest of the letter because it's addressing an issue of division in the church. That's something, a theme we've been kind of talking about with 1 Corinthians, right? That's been a constant theme is Paul is addressing division in the church. But the issue of division Paul is addressing in chapter 15 is the resurrection. And you may think, why is there division over that? I mean, it's pretty plain and simple, right? Jesus died and was raised from the dead. We believe that. There shouldn't be an issue. Well, some of the believers in Corinth were having a tough time kind of wrapping their minds around this idea that they too would be resurrected one day, um, along with those who have already died. In their minds, that meant like, full zombie apocalypse style, like dead decaying bodies coming back to life and walking around when Jesus returns. That's what they imagined in their heads, which that would make a really cool movie, right? Um, but Paul isn't in the business of filmmaking. Paul is more concerned with clearing up this confusion for Corinth. But as is typical of Paul sometimes, he makes it slightly more confusing before bringing clarity. Sometimes, you know, it's got to get worse before it gets better. And perhaps that's what my sermon is going to do. I hope not. <laughs> but we got to love that about Paul, right? With that said, um, would you guys stand as you are able and willing on your feet or in your hearts today um, out of reverence for the reading of the word? Um, like I said, I'm going to jump around a little bit. I'm going to read um, chapters or verses 12 through 20 
35 through 44, and then the last verse, um, verse 58. So follow along in your Bibles or on the screen um, today. Starting at verse 12. So if the message that is preached says that Christ has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. We are found to be false witnesses about God because we testified against God that he raised Christ when he didn't raise him, if that's the case, that the dead aren't raised. If the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And what's more, those who have died in Christ are gone forever. If we have a hope in Christ only in this life, then we deserve to be pitied more than anyone else. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first crop, first fruits of the harvest of those who have died. So jumping down to verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come back? Look, fool, when you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't come back to life until it dies. What you put in the ground doesn't have the shape that it will have, but it's a bare grain of wheat or some other seed. God gives it the sort of shape that he chooses, and he gives each of the seeds its own shape. All flesh isn't alike. Humans have one kind of flesh, animals have another kind of flesh, birds have another kind of flesh, and fish have another kind. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The heavenly bodies have one kind of glory, and the earthly bodies have another kind of glory. The sun has one kind of glory, the moon has another kind of glory, and the stars have another kind of glory. But one star is different from another star in its glory. How many times can you say glory in one passage? The sun, oh, I already said that. It's the same with the resurrection of the dead. A rotting body is put into the ground, but what is raised won't ever decay. It's degraded when it's put into the ground, but it's raised in glory. It's weak when it's put into the ground, but it's raised in power. It's a physical body when it's put into the ground, but it's raised as a spiritual body. If there's a physical body, there's also a spiritual body. And the last verse, 58. As a result of all this, my loved brothers and sisters, you must stand firm, unshakable, excelling in the work of the Lord as always, because you know that your labor isn't going to be for nothing in the Lord. This is the word of God given to us, the people of God. We say, thanks be to God. You can be seated. Sorry, that was a long passage, I know. Got your exercise for today. Um, so you can imagine my maybe frustration or confusion when trying to figure out what to preach about today. There are so many directions we could go with this text, right? One thing we could talk about is why the Corinthians are so confused, why they have a hard time believing in the resurrection. Another thing we could talk about is Paul's theology of the resurrection, and not just Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection of us as believers. Another thing we could talk about is our theology of the resurrection and the way we should allow it to shape our lives. And I couldn't pick just one, so we're going to talk about all of them. Don't worry, I won't go over time, at least not too much. Uh, who knows? We'll see. We'll see where this goes. But in order to understand where the, some of, why some in the church in Corinth were confused about the resurrection and why they were hesitant to accept it as doctrine and truth, we should try to understand their context a little bit. 
the early church was, you see, heavily influenced by lots of philosophers, um, one of whom was named Plato, not the putty stuff. There's a dude named Plato, a Greek guy, um, who taught on this sort of kind of perfectionism and higher realm that can't be reached until we leave this physical world and body behind. He taught that humans are first and foremost souls, but that those souls are trapped in these bodies. Basically, he taught that the soul equals good and the body equals bad. And you see, this way of thinking um, and believing continued to be a major influence for years and years, and in fact, is still an influence because there are many Christian and non-Christian people who believe that when we die, we, they have this idea that we finally get to leave this body and earth behind and go to some far-off place that we call heaven. And perhaps heaven is something you've struggled with too, like the Corinthians. I have. And that is completely normal given the track record of the church on this issue. It's not the easiest thing to talk about when we really get into it, nor is it the easiest thing to preach about, but we're going to give it a shot. Um, you see, people have been fighting about and debating this topic of heaven for a long time. Is heaven a geographical place or simply an idea? Is it paved with streets of gold, with angels playing harps, or is it more like earth, just a new version of it? All kinds of questions regarding heaven. And we won't go too much into the heaven part of it so much as we will talk about the resurrection, but they are oddly interconnected. And by oddly, I mean not oddly at all. Um, they have a lot to do with each other. So what do we do about this problematic view of the body being bad? One of my favorite authors and theologians, who I'll quote a few times in my sermon today, N.T. Wright, um, he's done a lot, and I mean so much research and study on these subjects, especially about resurrection. And one thing he says is this. He says, one of the key problems about the idea of Plato's disembodied heaven is that it generates the wrong view of what human life ought to be in the present time as an anticipation or even qualification for that destiny. Basically, what he means is that when we adopt this view of heaven as a place where our souls go when we die and leave these bodies behind, we're misinterpreting what scripture teaches, namely the bodily resurrection, as well as living into that resurrection here and now. And so that is where Paul is going with chapter 15 today. In short, some of the believers in Corinth adopted these views from these philosophers, namely that the body is bad and the soul is good. And it's hard to blame them, right, when they were raised in this culture that taught them that, that taught these concepts that were primarily Greek and Roman and pagan, a.k.a. not centered around Christ. You see, Christ is still kind of this new idea to them. And Paul's t attempting to, to teach them that. So Paul and later early church fathers would say, no, 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 you guys are getting it all wrong. If we believe in all that Jesus was and is and will be, then we believe that the resurrection happens not just to the soul, but to the whole body. The tomb is empty, right? And if we believe that, then we better believe that God is in the business of redeeming and restoring all of creation, bodies and all. See, Paul in his typical extreme fashion says that if we don't believe Christ actually rose from the dead, then we might as well not even be called believers. He even makes it personal and says, what's more, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then those who have already died in Christ are gone forever. Poof, no more. Paul is saying there's no hope if we don't believe that Christ was raised from the dead. 
And yet, when I read this chapter, I'm a little convicted. I mean, isn't Paul so right? If we're going to proclaim the good news of the gospel, that must include the exciting and mysterious reality of the resurrection. Amen? I say I'm a little convicted because I wonder in what ways I have failed to live as if I truly believe that Christ rose from the dead, that he conquered the grave, and that, he, and that someday my body will too be raised from the dead. I mean, that ought to transform the way I live my life, right? That ought to transform the way we live as the body of Christ, the church. And this is why Paul is so concerned. The Corinthians have this skewed concept of the future. I'm going to teach you a fancy word um, about, uh, that, that refers to talking about the future. It's called eschatology. Um, essentially, it just means theology that's concerned with the future, with, with what we call the end times, with death, the final judgment. Um, so anything future, eschatology. So if you hear me use that word in the sermon, you have a little idea of what it means. So what we know from this chapter is that some of the believers in Corinth have kind of a, a questionable eschatology. They lacked this sense of a future resurrection which Paul and others proclaim is promised to us through Christ by the Spirit. And because they lacked that, they were justifying bad behavior with the logic that it doesn't matter what I do with my body now because it's just going to go away, right? So they were eating meat, sacrificed to idols, and doing other questionable things with their body that weren't good. You see, faith and religion, to some of them, had no influence on their future because that's what the pagan religions of the time taught. So needless to say, Paul had his hands full. He took on this task of helping early Christians reshape and reimagine their theology in such a way that Christ is the center, not these pagan gods, not these philosophers. Christ is the center, not the Roman Empire by which they were so profoundly shaped. In so many words, Paul was saying, stop putting your hope in the empire because it will not offer you eternal life, but we know someone who will. See, part of this reshaping and reimagining meant convincing the early believers that what they do in this life matters. It meant convincing them that Christ is only the first fruits of the harvest, the beginning of something much greater and grander. And this is why Paul uses that analogy of seed time and harvest, which is so relevant to us today, right? There's so many farming communities. Some of you are gardeners. Um, we know the importance of a good harvest. And Paul uses this analogy to explain that when Christ rose from the dead, he was just the first of many to come. Jesus' resurrection isn't an isolated instance. It wasn't just one and done, right? Um, N.T. Wright, that author I mentioned earlier, he wrote in one of his books that the point of the first fruits is that there will be many, many more. It signifies the great harvest still to come, and we get to be a part of that. But in some ways, Jesus' resurrection felt like the climax, right? Like there isn't much else to be done after that. And I think we may find ourselves thinking in that kind of same mindset sometimes. But Paul wants to convince the early church and us that we are still living in that climax. We're still living in the reality of Christ's resurrection. Christ is still alive and well among us. The resurrection was not the end of the story, but the beginning of a new story, of new creation. So now we're getting into a little bit of Paul's theology of the resurrection. 
Um, but now when we talk about the resurrection, it isn't just Jesus' resurrection we're talking about. Um, it's the resurrection that will occur when Christ returns. And now we're getting into some real eschatological goodness. Um, here's where my inner nerd comes out. If it hasn't already, it might have. I'm sorry. But let me be clear that Paul is adamant that when Christ returns, bodies will be raised, not just souls. There will most likely be an epic dance party. Except Nazarenes will be in the corner because Nazarenes don't dance. Just kidding. That's not a thing anymore. I mean, maybe some of you don't dance. I don't know. But I'm going to be dancing. So what does he mean by this? What does he mean um, when he says, well, sorry, let me back up. There's, there are, he says that there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. The heavenly bodies have one kind of glory and the earthly bodies have another kind of glory. What does he mean by that? There are many different interpretations. One of the most popular, which I've already kind of hinted at, is that the heavenly body refers to like a soul without a body. But I think if that were the case, then the original language, the Greek, would have used the word for soul instead of body, right? But it doesn't. The Greek word here is psychikos, which implies a form of physicality, of bodiliness, it's clear that a physical body is what will raise from the dead when Christ comes again to redeem all of creation, just as Christ's body was raised. One more quote from my favorite author in his book, Surprised by Hope, which is a book that I highly recommend. If you want to read more about the resurrection, um, this is a great, great read. But he, read, he writes that God's people are promised a new type of bodily existence, the fulfillment and redemption of our present bodily life. In other words, our present bodies will be redeemed and restored to their original intention as created in the good image of God. And let me remind you that the believers in Corinth connected the notion of resurrection with earthly bodies, right? So like zombie apocalypse style, like I said earlier. But Paul corrects them, saying that when Christ returns and the dead are raised and those who are living are changed, it will be in a transformed sort of way. In a sense, we will be transfigured into heavenly, immortal bodies that won't decay, but will be the fulfillment of God's good intentions for creation, redeemed and restored. You see, our current earthly body is just a vessel not just a vessel, it is a vessel through which the body, the new body, will take over as a part of the new creation. Using the metaphor that Paul introduces, the bare and naked seed, the earthly body, is put into the ground and comes out of the soil transformed, the heavenly body. It's not a perfect metaphor because the seed doesn't actually die, but it, but it changes in the ground, right? It doesn't come out looking like a seed. It comes out looking like a new plant. But it's, and it's neat to think about the resurrection that way, right? The earthly body must undergo a transformation, being clothed with a new body, one that is animated by the spirit and doesn't decay. That's beautiful imagery. Redeemed and restored. Our current earthly body is the vessel. Oh, I already said that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but... Um, Redeemed and restored. So when we think about this transformation, there's an implication here that, that we often miss, I think. That transformation isn't just about when Jesus returns. The transformation starts the moment we commit our lives to Christ. Technically, it started the moment 
Christ defeated the grave, right? But for us as believers, the moment we decide to follow Christ, that transformation begins. I'm going to take a quick little detour here and say that I think what this passage offers for us that we can easily miss is a theology of taking care of our bodies. You see, just several chapters earlier in chapter 6, which was nine weeks ago, long time, um, Paul reminds us that our bodies do matter, that these bodies are a dwelling place for God now, not just in the age to come. He writes, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Don't you know that you have the Holy Spirit from God and you don't belong to yourselves? You've been bought and paid for, so honor God with your body. And in his letter to the Philippians, Paul reminds the believers that, there are, that when Jesus returns in glory, he will transform our humble bodies so that they are like his glorious body by the power that also makes him able to subject all things to himself. You see, there's a lot of material out there, maybe you've read some of it, on soul care, which, don't get me wrong, that is so important to take care of our souls. But let us not be so quick to dismiss our bodies as a part of that. Okay, my detour is over. I'll come back to the, to the passage. I'm going to venture that Paul is has at least two purposes for addressing the Corinthians' misconceptions of the resurrection. First, Paul is concerned with their understanding of the future. We've already talked about this. Their eschatology was a little wonky. Second, Paul is concerned with how they are living in the present because that will affect their future. But not just because it'll affect their future and their behaviors right now, but because it in fact affects their present. Their present affects their present. The way they act now affects everyone around them, including new believers. And as we know from the previous chapters, Paul is big on making sure that we are not a stumbling block for new believers, right? And I'm convinced that we need to ask ourselves the same questions that Paul was asking of the church in Corinth. In what ways have we been false witnesses about God? In what ways are we living as if Christ didn't, raise from, didn't rise from the dead? How are we living as if our bodies don't matter in this life or the next? I mentioned earlier that God is in the business of redeeming all of creation, right? And somehow we've assumed that this won't take place until Jesus comes back. And in one sense, that's, that's pretty true. The redemption and restoration of creation won't fully take place until Jesus returns and makes all things new. But that restoration and redemption, might we say a sort of resurrection of creation, was set in, moment, or set in motion the moment Christ rose from the grave and conquered death. That was the beginning of the new creation. In other words, as Christians, we are called to live it, we are called to live into what we like to call an already not yet sort of kingdom living. All that means is that the kingdom of God is already here because of what Christ has done, what Christ has initiated through his life, death, and resurrection. But it's not fully here because Christ has not yet returned. We're still living into the climax of Christ's resurrection. That means there's still work to be done, folks. And I think with anything that is worth exploring in scripture, which is everything, we must allow our imaginations to take leaps 
not in an effort to fully understand everything there is to know about life and faith and God, because that just won't happen, but we have to take the leap so that we might continually be transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. We have to take the leap into the sometimes challenging conversations. With that said, there's one last concern I believe needs to be mentioned as we seek to understand Paul's theology of the resurrection and take a look at our own, and that is death. See, death is a reality of our lives. I don't think we talk about it enough. We might even be afraid of it, but we should talk about it more for a couple reasons. Well, a lot of reasons, but just a couple that I'm going to mention. You see, as humans, death is a part of our life cycle. It isn't what God intended for us, but it is reality. We should talk about it openly and allow conversation to flourish around it because it matters. It's a part of our stories, right? More importantly, though, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it because if we are a people who proclaim the resurrection, and if you get anything from this sermon, this is what I want you to take away. We are also a people who must proclaim that death does not get the last word, that death is not the end, not only because Christ defeated the grave, but because when Christ returns, death will finally be defeated in full. A part of the chapter I didn't read in 1 Corinthians 15, it reads this. Paul says, It's necessary for this rotting body to be clothed in what can't decay, and for the body that is dying to be clothed in what can't die. And when the rotting body has been clothed in what can't decay and the dying body has been clothed in what can't die, then this statement in scripture will happen. Death has been swallowed up by a victory. Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting? When Christ returns, death will no longer be a reality. And that is the proper hope in the resurrection, church. That is why we believe these bodies will be transformed these bodies will be redeemed, and that we will one day live fully into the new creation initiated by Jesus. That is why we live like the resurrection matters here and now. We can't just treat it like something that happened once and will happen later, and we're somehow trapped in this in-between. That's not, that's not what it is. So what does it mean to live into the reality of the resurrection? Um, I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up. But I think it means a lot of things. I think it means treating our bodies well and likewise treating each other well, caring for the oppressed and speaking on behalf of the voiceless, the lives that society says don't matter. It means not putting our trust in authorities that oppose the kingship of Christ, like the Corinthians put their hope in the empire of Rome. And it means living our lives in a way that proclaims the truth that death and sin don't win. Life does. Christ owns the victory. You see, if we are a people who believe in an eternal future, in the resurrection when Christ returns, we must also be a people who believe in the goodness of God's good creation here and now. And that's one reason, kind of a little side note, I struggle with songs that talk about leaving this world behind, of going home. Guys, this is our home right now, and we're called to be good stewards of it. This is God's good creation, so we've got to roll up our sleeves 
I don't have sleeves or else I would roll them up. Um, and we've got to get a little dirty while we're here. That was God's command of Adam and Eve in the garden, wasn't it? To take care of this blessed creation. That's the vocation to which we are called as God's created ones. So church, let's live like we know this life matters. Church, the reality of the resurrection should change the way we live our lives, right? Another author of one of the commentaries I was reading this week put it so plainly. He wrote, There is one place where the new life and God's agenda should be manifest on earth, in the behavior of Christians, in particular in the Christian community as it gathers for worship and fellowship. In other words, this is the place the resurrection of Christ should be made known. When people come, they should know that we are a people who value life. Amen? On that note, would you stand now and extend your hands to receive the benediction today? May we be a church, a people, a body that proclaims the resurrection like it matters. May we be a people who look not just to the future, but who take seriously our human vocation for which God created us, which first and foremost includes the call to love God and love people. Let us be a people who live into the already not yet reality of God's kingdom. And like Paul commands in the last verse of our passage today, you must stand firm, unshakable, excelling in the work of the Lord as always, because you know that your labor isn't going to be for nothing in the Lord. So go, knowing that Christ lives and reigns among us. Amen. Go in peace.